And now we're on, and you can hear me beautifully. Mike is hot. Mike is hot. The mic, it is hot. Because it's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. It's too darn hot. All right. We'll have to keep the show G-rated so we can't sing any more of that song. <laughs> no, we can't. Alrighty then. I don't know. Maybe our audience would like listening to us sing Cold Porter standards. I mean, I'd find it more entertaining than listening to us ramble about games. <laughs> oh. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here to explore cultivating connections through play. It is a gorgeous Sunday afternoon as we record this, but whatever time of day it is that you're listening to, I hope you're having a good one. And before we get started with today's topic, I want to remind everyone that if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. It helps new listeners find us more easily. And however you're listening to us, please share the show with your friends and even your enemies. Yeah, definitely share with the enemies. I mean, if you can't stand listening to this, definitely pass it along and torture them with. If you actually enjoy it, maybe you can affect a reconciliation. We can get the planets in alignment, harmony and world peace, kind of like in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Truly. Be excellent to each other. Oh, man. Speaking of being excellent to each other, that is not the point of this game. No. Today's game that we'll be uh, going into a deep dive on, uh, your job is to create the most miserable life possible. We are talking about the card game Gloom. So, to give a quick recap, Gloom is a tabletop card game. It was created by designer Keith Baker and published by Atlas Games in 2004 and won the Origins Award for Best Traditional Card Game in 2005, which is about the time that we discovered it. Yeah. Yeah. We had been... We had a number of friends who we were all together in college with, and one of the things that we would get together with on a regular basis while we all were all just starting out with our families was to get together for card games with each other and other board games. Card games, board games. We played Catan. Um, we played Carcassonne. Uh, we'd occasionally play D&D together. There was um, a Lord of the Rings game. Yeah, it was a great Lord of the Rings game. I we wish got to do an episode on that if one. If we can find it's, it. I think it's still available. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, but today's about Gloom, and Gloom was one of the card games that our friends introduced us to, and we just took to it like ducks to water. Um, you want to give our audience a summary of Gloom and its themes, and then we can kind of go into, um, you know, just what all, mm-hmm. what, what, what some of the benefits of playing it are, and then things to keep in mind so that it stays fun. So, Gloom was developed as a card game because the game designer found that he had trouble getting his wife to play games because she always felt bad about winning. And so he had the idea, what if the goal was to have the worst score, not the best score? And so created a game in which your job is to have a, your each character, each set of... Each uh, player. Each player. Has a family. 
that they're responsible for. Um, You're given a set of cards with, I believe it's five characters. Yeah. Each of these characters it has a name and a little brief snippet about who they are. And throughout the course of the game, things happen to your characters. So if you're familiar with Victorian novels, if you're familiar with Gothic or faux-Gothic novels, if you've read a series of unfortunate events, which was insanely popular about the time this game came out, that's kind of the general tenor of the game. Mm -hmm. The game really, re I'm, like, I've, I have friends who are who are who were English lit majors, and they focused in nineteenth century Brit lit, so they had to read all those torturous three volume novels about consumptive heiresses and dark strangers and pining on moor sides and people being pecked to death by ducks and coming to horrible, unfortunate ends and. You know, everyone's running around being dope fiends and whatnot. And 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 there's a certain irreverence you develop when that's your literary stock and trade. And this game really trades on that. But you don't have to have that background to enjoy this game either, because it's there there's a kind of almost Adam's family monsters campiness about the cards and the gameplay as well. So whether you're coming at it from a very pseudo-scholarly, erudite background, or you're just looking for something to play that's fun, and while you drink some beer and eat some Cheetos and what have you. Or if you've got a group of kids around on a rainy day and you're looking for entertainment, um, this is a good time passer. It's generally a fairly quick playing game. Yes. And thus is really good for not having huge commitments to time. So, gameplay in a nutshell. Each player is handed a group of cards that represent the family. Um, and what you do... Th and there are five characters in a given family mm -hmm. so that everybody's got basically the, the five, five characters that have to be eliminated... And the first person for whom everyone in their family is eliminated, that's what ends the game. Yes. The cards are clear. There's a reason for this. Like clear acetate. Um, so they're, they're durable, um, but they're, they're translucent. And that translucency is important. So on your card, you have the name of your character... You have an illustration. If you're familiar with Edward Gorey's illustrations, and if you're not, please go look them up. You will never find such delightful pen and ink drawings anywhere else. If you watched Mystery on PBS growing up in the 80s or early 90s, frequently those mystery programs were introduced by uh, a cartoon sequence that was done in a pen and ink style. Those were Edward Gorey's drawings. Uh, he also did some wonderfully delightful illustrations for a reissue of some of Hilaire uh, Belloc's Cautionary Tales for Children. Uh, like, uh, was it Matilda who told lies and was burned to death? Yes. Um, great stories. A excellent poems to do for, if you do poetry memorization, A1. Love them. So, they have an Edward Gorey-esque illustration style. And throughout the course of the game, you draw cards and play them. You can play them on your own characters. You can play them on opposing characters' players. Opposing uh, players', players characters. Opposing players' characters. 
Each time that you draw an event card, let me find an example one here. You have your character. Let's say that you are playing with the family that's got the Slogars. Who are that's the one with the tel- teddy bear? Yes. And the brain in the jar? Yes, it's kind of reminiscent. This one's kind of reminiscent of Frankenstein's monster and that kind of mad scientist. And each family's got a different theme. The, 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 the weird artists, the carnival people. This one's the kind of Frankenstein's monster family. So, the cast of Deliverance. So we assume that we've got a card. The card is, was addled by absinthe. And each card names what happened to this character and gives a example of how many points are lost by playing that card. You want to lose points in this game because what you're trying to do is rack up points and rack up points in the negative direction. Minus 10 and then minus 15, minus 20. So the reason you're doing that is that those those negative point tallies increase the misery and depression of your characters. And the lowest point totals are what, what affect the victory condition. So there are other cards that are beneficial, and those you generally want to play on your opponents. They either zero out their misery, or they give them positive happiness. Um, and so... You would play those on your opponents in order to make sure their people are shiny and happy and enjoying life, and um, so that. And then what you what you as a player would want to do is try and kill those characters off while they are shiny and happy, because that offsets the misery of your opponent's other uh, characters. Ultimately, a character goes out of play when they die. And you play a card, it's got this delightful little tombstone uh, icon in the corners. So, for example, let's say that our character was shot in a duel. You're given instructions in the, in the bottom of the card that get, may give you a, things additional um, to that, so that when you tally up... Additional final, benefits. Additional benefits, um, extra instructions on how this may affect other plays, or how it affects the final tallying up of points. So, this may be sounding a little complicated in the abstract. I promise you, it's painfully simple to learn. The actual instruction sheet is like one A5 sheet of paper, which is slightly smaller than eight and a half by 11 letter size here in the States. It's like an A5 sheet printed front and back, reasonably large uh, font, and a bunch of graphic illustrations. And so the the actual gameplay is very quick, and the real joy of the game comes from the fact that with the icons and the the event card descriptions and the flavor text, you and the other players can start spinning these really elaborate stories that look like something Edward Gorey illustrated. Um, something uh, like a Karen Elizabeth Gordon grammar book or um, one of these... Or reading some of the more tortured stories as you read through the the era of Charles Dickens and Edgar Allan Poe. If you, if the you, Brontes. Oh, the Brontes. And if you, if you took that kind of gothic sensibility and then filter it through the the self-awareness of that gothic sensibility, yes. that's where you get into that feel of the game. I believe there's at least a variant deck that's built around the Cthulhu mythos that they licensed. Um, I played that at a um, 
there was a conference I was at and a couple of guys were playing and one guy had to go off and do his presentation and asked me to fill in and the gameplay was identical. And in fact, the Cthulhu deck can actually act as an expansion to the regular decks. There's also a Munchkin variant okay. as well as a fairy tale variant. Oh, that I didn't know. The fairy tale variant I want to get because I love fairy tales. Well, somebody has a birthday coming up. Someone does. Alrighty. So, the game ends when one player has all of their characters killed off. At that point, everyone has to tally up their family's misery. Yeah. Any characters still alive don't count. Any characters who are dead count towards the victory points for that player, but positive, so people who died happy and fulfilled and, and enjoying life, those don't count towards your victory points. Correct. So, when the game ends and you tally up victory points, the person with the lowest score wins. So, with that in mind, it then raises a question, well, what does this game teach? Yes, because one of our ongoing maxims is, let the game teach. Now, there is obviously the fact that every game that you play always has the benefit of time with the other people spent. And this one can be very fun on the most light time-passing way because of the illustrations and the funny, strange things that lead to these characters' misery or happiness. And just the sheer delight could be a time well spent. However, the first thing that I think of when I think of this game is that if you are trying to work on math facts, you are working on addition and subtraction in fives. As well as positive and negative numbers conceptually. Yes. So if you are trying to drill basic arithmetic and working with your fives, this is an excellent, excellent game to work with. And you will, if you spend time playing this game, these facts will be drilled. There is also strategy involved in this game because once you understand that you're trying to increase your character's misery and reduce the misery of others, as you look at the cards in your hand, you look and say, none of these would be useful to play on my characters, but I can play these on my opponents and I can make their characters happier. I can kill them off while they don't have any particularly uh, low scores and thus ensure that that character's overall score won't be particularly low. It helps with strategic thinking and planning as you have to look at what are the cards involved, how can I use these in the long run. The third thing that I would think of is that if you are playing, if you are spending time reading any of those gothic novels, this is a good way to step back from that and have a bit of a laugh at the ridiculousness of it. And then when you dive back in, you can look and say, is this silly? Is this over the top? Or is this, in fact, something that is adding to the atmosphere of the story? I'd also say it has uh, an opportunity, uh, especially with you know older teens, young adults who are kind of struggling to deal with articulating feelings and, and um, you know, moods and grappling with a lot of that, it creates a very interesting dynamic where you can have discussions about really serious topics like mental illness and depression and 
um, you know, what is best in life and, and, and goals and so forth, you can have them about characters in the game and it's obliquely about the players, but nobody's got a feel put on the spot. Mm-hmm. And so it, it can be light, fun, popcorn, beer and pretzels kind of a thing, or it can be a little heavier. But the game itself is a lot of fun. It plays very fast. It's very portable. Um, I think we've got a three-inch stack of cards, and that's... A base game and two expansions. Yeah, that's a base game and two expansions. I think we can support up to six or seven players. Six players with the expansions that we have. Um, And our kids will pull it out and play it because my wife and I spent... I don't know, an, a relaxed afternoon a couple of years ago, we pulled the gloom cards out and um, sat down to play, and the older ones got the hang of it, and they've since taught the younger ones, and the ones who can't read can at least do basic arithmetic, mm-hmm. and the older ones can read the cards to them, um, and everybody can have a good time. And like I said, it's like a three-inch stack of plastic acetate cards We've had milk spilled on ours. We've had um, soda spilled on ours. They clean up real easy. You rinse them off. You blot them dry. And once they're dry, you put them back in the rubber band. You can stick them in your pocket or your bag. They're really durable. Another thing it just struck me is that if you're trying to do composition and you need ideas for stories. Oh, talk about story prompts. Most of the cards are story prompts in and of themselves. And so it gives you... Plot points. Reminds me of Rory's Story Cubes, where mm-hmm. you roll dice and the icons are supposed to provide you prompts that you can then use for either extemporaneous storytelling or as a literary prompt for a written narrative. And so it, it goes into the essentials of story, which are you have characters and that character lives in a milieu. They have families. They have... Environments. And then things happen to that character. And each card is either something happening to that character or that character's ultimate death. So if you're trying to do composition, it's like, let's just deal out some random events. Tell what happened in this character's life. You've got the basic outlines for plot. And if you're trying to work on things like story composition, this is a game in which you're playing a story and each character's got a story. And the character with the most miserable life wins. Yeah, yeah. At which I mean, there there are I'm sure people who will find the the conceit of the game um, might hit a little too close to home, but um, I, I've I've enjoyed it for for what we've been playing it 15 years now. Um, uh, I've I've enjoyed it uh, immensely. The kids love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, every all the friends we've shared it with have enjoyed it as well. Um, it's proven to be a great icebreaker um, and and a whole lot of fun. And again, you get that that rapid drill of positive and negative numbers and what those additives do. You get that visual recognition of what the icons represent, and you can through the icons and familiarity start understanding some of the subtle strategic and tactical decisions you can make. And then of course you've got all the story prompts and once you're comfortable as a pl- group of players with the 
the narrative elements and of the gameplay, you can build on those narrative elements and then you start telling each other extemporaneous stories driven by the cards. And that's where it really becomes fun because all of a sudden you get a kind of of ghost story opportunity. It, it reminds me of one of the writing um, groups we were involved with in college um, that wasn't through the school but was was something a group of us who were students did. A couple of the people who had been members of that have gone on to become successful professional writers. Um, the rest of us just really like to write and tell ghost stories every year at Halloween and then again in the spring. Um, and, and ghost stories, broadly speaking, so there, there were, and then I still remember some of those tales. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jonathan's pumpkin seed tea, and and um, uh, was it Pig Lou's house of pop tarts? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and and so that kind of storytelling experience, whether it's people telling ghost stories around a campfire. Um, there's a sense in which that's been lost as we're all kind of glued to screens and ears plugged into to headphones and, and people feeling cut off. Gloom is an inexpensive, very effective way to kind of break some of those barriers down and just take a step back and, and get to know each other as people and have a good time while doing it. And the fun, the fun is really the key there. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, how do you keep it fun? Because as we've noted before, every game has that opportunity to go rapidly from everyone's having a good time to someone's horribly upset and frustrated. So what do we do? What are some common pitfalls to avoid? Well, the most obvious one would be to consider before you get started, what are the math skills that you have at the table? If you have students, I would consider... Roughly six to seven years old, about... Able to do basic addition and subtraction regardless of age. I yeah. mean, I've met three and four-year-olds who have enough arithmetic skill. I would call it a... Fir- None of our three or four-year-olds yeah. could have done it, but, but I've what, met... What would be classified as a first to second grade level of arithmetic should be more than capable yeah. of doing the arithmetic involved. With pre-readers, you're going to have to help them read their cards to get some of the fun out of the flavor text... But so long as they can do the math, they're going to be able to do it. But you do want to make sure that they've at least got the beginnings of that mathematical skill or the game is going to be a frustration point. Yeah, the the point values move in increments of 5. So everything's plus 5, minus 5, plus 10, minus 10, plus 15, minus 15. Very few of them go beyond 20. I think there's only one or two cards I can think of that have like a plus or minus 20 or 25 um, because those swings are really hard to recover from one way or the other. Um, and so groups of five, you're not going much beyond 30 as a, as a, 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 a conceptual number uh, of points in either direction. Um, and so, again, that sort of first to second grade math skills is probably a prerequisite. If, if you've got a, a child who's struggling with that, um, either because of age or disability, just be aware you're going to have to work with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a standpoint of reading skills, the reading is probably closer... Um, I'd say closer to middle school. Probably closer to middle school. Um, of an age where you can understand, even if you can't comfortably read authors like Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, I mean, I, I okay, I, admittedly, I was I was a freakishly bizarre child, but I, I know I was reading a lot of Edgar Allan Poe by the time I was, I guess, nine or ten. 
Um, but 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 even still, if if the the, the ability to read at that level, uh, I would say probably somewhere around eight or nine. So that seven to nine kind of range is probably a comfortable place to start. But that child's probably still going to need some support. Mm-hmm. Um, and in terms of uh, contemporary stories, if you want to look at it, if you're reading The Incorrigible Children of Ashton Place, or if you, your children liked a, sto- a, a series of unfortunate events, that Victorian floridity of prose. What about Mysterious Benedict Society? Would, would that be one in that same kind of vein? Or did I misunderstand the point of that story series entirely? Excellent story series. Um, not what I would consider Victorian in style. Okay, yeah, I didn't get around to reading those. I just remember the kids glommed onto those, devoured them, and then moved on to other stuff. So, yeah. I, I mean, if, if, if you've got kids who are reading C.S. Lewis's Narnia... Um, that's, that's going to be comparable in terms of, of level. And remember the, the cards, the, the blurbs are short, so it's not like long passages of Victorian prose. No, but it doesn't hurt to have dictionary.com or an actual, um... Oh, heavens, a physical dictionary, like, printed on dead tree? Yes. Oh, good heavens. Do it people doesn't, still have those? It doesn't hurt to have something like that on hand. because occasionally, ask, Do people besides us yes. still have those? Occasionally you will run in, across a word that may be unfamiliar, and that's a great uh, learning opportunity. But the frustration point will come if you're either not particularly familiar with that math, so, so may, start once you know that they've got at least basic arithmetic in place, possibly some frustration with vocabulary level. And then the third thing to keep in mind is it is a competitive game. There are winners... And there are losers. So. When one of our, oh, which one was it? It's one of the kids in the middle, because this was a few years ago when we started playing it with them. I forget which one of our kids it was, who was, I don't know, I guess six or seven at about that time. Maybe Robert? Maybe. Maybe. Anyway, one of our kids who was about seven or eight, six or seven or eight, when we were teaching the older kids and the rest of the family, Gloom, um, got really focused on not wanting their people to be unhappy. And so they played all the happy cards on their, on their own characters, and they just kind of ignored the whole point of the game, which is to make other people's characters happy, your characters miserable, so you accumulate enough points to win the game. They didn't win the game, but they had an immensely fun time telling themselves stories about all the wonderful, happy things that kept happening to their characters. (laughs) And they would just discard all of the cards, which is most of them, that do horrible, horrible things to these characters. And when that got old, when that got boring, they decided they were actually, uh, he decided he was actually interested in, okay, well, how do I win this game? It's like, oh, well, you have to make yourself, your characters miserable, and everybody else is happy. And he was like, that's weird, but okay, that's the rules of the game. I can play by those rules. And he got really good at it. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're going to have, that's another pitfall you're going to run into, especially with the younger kids. Um, I know our daughter went through that also when we taught her to play Gloom, that what she really wanted to do was just make all of her people very happy, happy, and sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and glitter, and even if those weren't on the cards, she was going to put them in there. And everyone else was playing Gloom around her. 
She was at the table. She was enjoying herself. She was with the family. We were enjoying ourselves. But the rest of us were playing gloom and trying to beggar thy neighbor. And she's sitting there and it's all sweetness and light and rainbows and happy, happy, joy, joy. And and there were some tears when she realized that she couldn't win the game that way. Mm -hmm. But... She had fun. There was family community there. There was there was shared shared experience. And as she grew aware that the game demands different behavior than what she was doing, she could decide either she didn't want to play the game anymore or she wanted to play it and get really good. And a lot of our kids seem to get really competitive when they realize they have to change from what they want to do to what the game demands they do in order to have a chance at winning. Mm -hmm. And to be able to realize that sometimes at seven or eight or nine for the rest of your life, you're going to have to conform yourself to the rules of an alien system in order to win the game that's presented to you, that's a pretty valuable lesson to, to, to have in your hip pocket uh, before you hit adolescence. Well, just the lesson of understanding what are the conditions for vi for winning yes. and building your actions around that. So my thought was is that recognizing that with most children, learning to lose gracefully is just one of those aspects of life, but it also is nice to win sometimes. Learn to play the game well enough that you can start playing the game fast. I feel like we should license a Queen song for our outro. Probably. <laughs> but what you're trying to do is play the game fast so that you can say, it's okay, let's play another round. Yeah. And take an opportunity to look and say, as, as you're watching through, it's like, watch what their strategy was. Were they understanding enough of the victory conditions that they were making plays that made sense? Was it just that they were dealt a bad hand? And help them learn that, you know, you, ha you have an another opportunity to play. It's not the only round you're going to go through. Use the fact that this game doesn't take very long to play, to play multiple rounds, and give that opportunity to see it's not just one person always winning. Yes. And give them that opportunity to have multiple playthroughs because it's the repetition that gets them both very good at doing the addition and subtraction and that helps them internalize this, the rules of the game to where they can start playing strategically. I'm sitting here playing with the cards because they're in front of me and I want to play them. Um, uh, which is not to say that I'm, I'm not enjoying the conversation. I, I think I think one of the... the the keynotes in, in, in my experience with Gloom and, and really with any other game is that frequency of repetition. I mean, there's the there's the old maxim that, that repetition is the mother of study. Repetition is the mother of knowledge. And, and that gets a bad name in our day and age because people immediately assume that means rote memorization, which I'm actually a huge fan of for a whole host of reasons I'm not going into now. But when you play a sport whether it's a team sport like football or an individual sport like martial arts or swimming, you drill, you swim laps, you do forms, you do 440s, and you do obstacle courses, and you do scrimmages. You drill what you're doing so that when you get into an actual game or competitive situation, you can execute flawlessly without having to worry about it. Well... 
drill of any kind, whether it's the manual of arms and close order drill in the military. Scales and music. Scales and music if you're learning to play an instrument. Um, what is it? Uh, there's scales and arpeggios, and then there are basic pieces that should be part of the repertoire that work your ability to, whether it's sing or play your violin or your piano or whatever, um, rhythm drills that, that percussionist friends of mine have done so that you can do all those cool things drummers do because you've practiced them. For that matter, bar exercises for both of us when we were in dance. Yeah, bar exercises, absolutely, for, for ballet dancers. And drill does have a genuine benefit. Repetition- drill is critical to skill mastery. And arithmetic is a skill. Mm-hmm. Storytelling is a skill. Strategic thinking and analysis is a skill. And the advantage to any card game that can be played fast is that every skill that that game develops, whether it's rapid calculation, strategic thinking, um, as well as with this one, spinning stories off of the cards that you're playing, all of those, the faster you can play, the more repetition you get. And repetition will develop that skill and do so faster. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think on that note, we can probably move to wrap up this episode. I hope you all have enjoyed it, and I hope you all get out to go and give Gloom a shot, because it's a fun game to play. And whether it's a sunny day in summer or a dreary one in autumn, we should have saved this one for autumn. It's such an October game. Well, you know, we could... Revisit the topic with some October rust. <laughs> License some typo negative, get really gloomy. You with your musical references today. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. All of the games that we've mentioned today can be found in the show notes. Uh, but now we'd love to hear from you. Tell us about the card games that you enjoyed playing. We might review one of them in one of our shows. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at PlayEdPod, or follow us and like us on Facebook at PlayEdPodcast. Please tell us your thoughts, and until next time, thanks for listening. Have a good one.